Welcome to the Inside Cover Podcast, Episode 2. Inside Cover Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us for this second episode. Today, we're going to be looking at Chip and Dan Heath's book, The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. And I'll be honest, I definitely bit off a little more than I could chew here for this uh, second episode and, and the first episode that I've actually uh, opened up a book and tried to uh, put it into a podcast. So got a lot of content to look at today. And we'll go ahead and jump right in. I've been on a big Heath Brothers kick lately. I, I really like their books because they're filled with a lot of really great data studies. But unlike some authors, they focus more on the overarching narrative of what we can learn from those studies rather than going super far into the weeds about like how many participants there were and how long the study lasted and all these things, which to me aren't really important. I just need to know what we learned from the, the data that we got. The Heath brothers also do a really, really great job of providing clear and action, actionable frameworks for how to take what's in the book and then put it into practice, which is something we'll see today as we talk through this book moments. First, a little bit about the two authors. Chip Heath is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. He teaches courses, of course, on business strategy and organizations, and he's also the co-author along with Dan, his brother, of four different books. Dan Heath is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports social entrepreneurs. Before that, Dan was a researcher and case writer for Harvard Business School. And in the late 90s, Dan co-founded an innovative publishing company called ThinkWell, which for almost 25 years has been producing online college textbooks that feature video lectures from some of the country's top professors. Dan has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA from the Plan 2 Honors Program at the University of Texas at Austin. In the book Moments, the Heath brothers lay out a framework for what makes a moment in our lives memorable, but even more than that, they also give us a clear path for how we can create these sorts of moments in our lives for ourselves, for our friends and our families, and also for customers. And that's one of the great things about this book and really most of the books that Heath Brothers write is that they really have something to offer for just about everyone, whether you're an educator, a small business owner, an employee in corporate America, a parent, or even just a spouse trying to lead your family well. So let's go ahead and jump right into the book. And we'll start. This is an excerpt from the very beginning. It says, defining moments shape our lives, but we don't have to wait for them to happen. We can be the authors of them. What if a teacher could design a lesson that students were still reflecting on years later? What if a manager knew exactly how to turn an employee's moment of failure into a moment of growth? What if you had a better sense of how to create lasting memories for your kids? And this is one of the main themes of the book, but to figure out how to create these defining moments, we first need to understand a little bit more about them. So when we evaluate our experiences in our lives, we don't look at them as an average of all the events within them, but rather we remember specific 
flagship moments, these moments that dictate whether the experience in total is positive or negative. As an illustration of this, let's look at another example from the book. For example, imagine you're taking your family to Disney World. And here's a breakdown of how the day goes with each event ranked from 1 to 10, 1 being awful and 10 being amazing. So you start the day 9 a.m., you're herding your kids out of the hotel room, everybody's excited, rating is a 6. At 10 o'clock, you're riding the It's a Small World ride together, and the parents and children are all together under the impression that everyone else is enjoying it. We give this rating a 5. At 11, you're, you've just ridden Space Mountain, the roller coaster, and your kids are begging to ride it again. We give that rating a 10. At noon, you've, you're eating lunch and spending way too much money on not very good food. Give that rating a 7. At 1 p.m., now you're waiting in line for 45 minutes in the 96-degree Florida heat, trying to keep your kid from licking the handrails. We give that rating a 3. And lastly, we end the day at 2 p.m. Everybody buys mouse ear hats on the way out of the park, and your kids look about as adorable as they've ever looked. We give that rating an 8. Now, to get an overall summary of how that day went, you would probably think that we would just average all those ratings and you'd get about a six and a half, which is a decent day. But if you were to be texted a few weeks later and asked how you rate your overall Disney experience, your answer would not be a 6.5. In fact, psychologists would say that 6.5 would be way off. They'd predict that looking at that day at Disney World, your overall rating would be a 9. And that's because research has found that in recalling an experience, we ignore most of what happened and focus instead on a few particular moments. And this is what's known as the peak end rule, which is really interesting and a super simple thing that you can put into play in your life to make sure that people remember moments positively. Basically, the peak end rule is that when people assess an experience, they rate the experience based on two moments. One, the best or worst moment, known as the peak, and two, the ending. So when reflecting on your Disney World trip, you'll remember the Space Mountain experience, which was the peak, and you'll remember the mouse years, which were the end. Everything else will fade out. The expensive park food, waiting in the line for in the 96 degree heat, all that's going to fade out. And as a result, your memory of that day is way more positive than the hour-by-hour -hour ratings that you provided. And this peak end rule can be applied to just about anything in your life, whether you're trying to make sure your family vacation is well remembered for years to come or want to make sure your employees have a great first day. Making sure there's a good peak moment and making sure it ends well will, will guarantee almost that the sum total of that experience is positive. But other than the peaks and the ends, what else can make a moment extraordinary? What makes a life-defining moment? According to the book, there's four different components that make up uh, these instances in our lives. And every moment may not have all four of these, but most of them will have at least two. So I want to do just a quick flyover of all four of these components, and then we'll look more close, closely at each one. So first, high-level overview of the four elements of defining moments. We have one, moments of elevation. And moments of elevation are moments that rise above the everyday. They're 
They provoke not just happiness like laughing, but also memorable delight. To make elevated moments, we have to boost sensory, sensory pleasures and, when appropriate, add an element of surprise, which the Heath brothers characterize as breaking the script. Moments of elevation rise above the normal course of events, and they're quite literally extraordinary. Second, we have moments of insight. And moments of insights are, are moments that rewire our understanding of ourselves or the world. In a really short period of time, we realize something that might influence our lives for decades. Now's the time for me to start this business, as an example, or this is the person I'm going to marry. Those are moments of insight. Moments of pride. <clears throat> These are moments that capture us at our best. Moments where you achieve something great or uh, do something really courageous. To create moments of pride, we have to understand something about the architecture of pride, how to plan a series of milestone moments that build on each other en route to a larger goal. And lastly, moments of connection. These are social moments like weddings, graduations, baptisms, vacations, etc. They're strengthened because we share them with others. And if you want to be a part of a group that bonds like cement, take on a really demanding task that's deeply meaningful. All of you will be connected and remember that for the rest of your lives. So those are the four defi like defining attributes of these defining moments. And now let's just take a little bit deeper look at each one of those. First, we have moments of elevation, which um, this is where we look at breaking the script. And breaking the script basically just means defining, defying people's expectations of how something is going to unfold. So they expect things to go one way and then you give them another. As an example for me, my support team at work, we changed our hold music to recordings of our employees sharing tips about our product. So customers call in expecting to get that same old annoying hold music that nobody enjoys and instead they get our employees a lot of which they've spoken to before and, and might know and they get tips about our product and helpful content while they wait that's breaking the script it's as simple as small and unexpected changes when you don't get what you expect but something better one study that they talk about in the book was a study of hotel reviews on TripAdvisor and they found that when guests reported experiencing a delightful surprise, 94% of them expressed an unconditional willingness to recommend the hotel, compared with only 60% of guests who reported themselves as very satisfied. So when you can break the script and deliver a, a surprise that catches people off guard in a delightful way, their chances of, of recommending you to somebody else are drastically higher than if they were just very satisfied. But how do we break the script consistently enough that it matters, but not so consistently that customers expect it? Of course, if we're always breaking the script, then we've rewritten the script and it's now what customers expect. So we have to approach this a little bit carefully. So in the book, they talk about introducing some randomness and they give an example of a restaurant name, which has a French name that I truly cannot pronounce. So I'm not going to try, but uh, this French restaurant, uh, every now and then they'll give customers something for free with their order. And one service, service expert wrote about getting free coffee, and he said it's happened a few times over the last few years. 
too often for it to be coincidence, yet so infrequent that I never expect it. This makes me feel valued as a customer, puts a smile on my face, and encourages me to visit again. And what's cool about this is it's not just the customers that that get this benefit. The spontaneous gifts are basically given to employees to give out. So they're allowed to give away a certain number of hot drinks and food items for free every week, and they get to choose who they give them to. So the CEO of this restaurant said, the employees will decide, I like that person on the bicycle, or I like that guy in the tie, or that girl or that boy is cute, whatever it may be. And they get to give something free to that person. So the leadership has just told these employees every week, give away some stuff to whoever you like. And it breaks the script then for the employees as well as the customers. And if you're in the service business, a good surprise is one that delights employees as well as customers. And it builds customer loyalty like almost nothing else can. Southwest Airlines is another company who has perfected the art of breaking the script. And I'm sure many of us have experienced one of their great one-liners during their safety briefing when you're sitting on the plane before it takes off. And in fact, they've taken some of those and put them on the wall at the Southwest headquarters. I've got four of them here that I'm going to read off. So one of them says, Ladies and gentlemen, if you wish to smoke, the smoking section on the airplane is on the wing, and if you can light them, you can smoke them. Another one is to activate the flow of oxygen, pull down the mask, place it over your nose and mouth, then insert one quarter for the first five minutes of oxygen and an additional dime every five minutes after. Exact change only, please. The third one, if you should get to use the life vest in a real life situation, the vest is yours to keep. And then the last one here, put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then on your child. If you're traveling with more than one child, start with the one you like the most. And those are all really funny. And those are all examples of Southwest Airlines breaking the script where you sit down on the airplane and you expect to get the same old boring safety talk. And instead, you get this really entertaining safety talk that still includes all the necessary information, but also holds your attention and makes you laugh. And that's all elevation, creating moments that rise above the ordinary and giving you things that you didn't expect. Now let's look at insight. When we look at insight, the the thing we talk about is tripping over the truth. So remember, in moments of insight, we realize something that might influence our lives for decades. The book tells this great story about community-led total sanitation, or CLTS for short. And buckle up here because this story is a little bit uh, graphic, but it tells the story and explains moments of insight and tripping over the truth better than just about anything. So community-led total sanitation has been used in over 60 countries around the world to help eliminate public defecation, also known as pooping in public. Here's how the process works for community-led total sanitation. First, a facilitator arrives in a village and introduces himself. And once he's kind of got a crowd gathered around him, he starts to do a transect walk where he walks around the village and the crowd follows him. And the facilitator asks, where do people poop? And the villages direct him to common areas where that usually goes down. 
And of course, they're a little bit embarrassed. They're eager to move on, get to the next thing. But he kind of lingers a little bit and he points and asks questions. He says, whose poop is this? Did anyone poop here today? Of course, it smells awful and people are covering their noses with their clothes. And he keeps asking these disgusting questions. Why is that poop yellow? Why is this one brown? The facilitator draws attention to the flies flitting between the piles. Are there always flies here? Of course, everybody nods. Now, the facilitator has been trained only to ask questions, not to give any advice or opinions. So they complete the walk and then they stop in a large public area and the facilitator asks them to draw a map of the village in the dirt. So the villagers map out the boundaries of the village along with any important landmarks, schools, or churches. And then he asks them to use stones or leaves to mark where their homes are. Once they've filled in the map, he points to a bag of yellow chalk he's brought and asks them to sprinkle it on places where people poop. And the kids enjoy sprinkling the chalk all over the open defecation areas. And the facilitator asks, what about if there's an emergency, like there's a rainstorm or you have to go to the bathroom really bad, then where do you go? Of course, now even more yellow chalk gets spread all over. And at this point, the whole village is covered in yellow. The crowd is feeling anxious, a little bit disgusted and embarrassed. They're not really sure what the whole point of this exercise has been. So then the facilitator asks for a glass of water. Someone gives him the water and he asks a woman if she, sh she would feel comfortable drinking it. And she says yes. He asks others if they agree and they all say yes. Then he takes a hair from his head and he, point he holds it up. He says, can you guys see this hair? And they can kind of see it, but not super well, but they know it's there. He walks to a pile of poop and he dips his hair into it. And then he puts the hair into the glass of water and swirls it around. Then he hands the glass to a villager and asks him to take a drink. Of course, the man refuses. He passes it all along to everybody in the group and they all refuse. And he says, why do you refuse? And of course, they're like, because it has poop in it, obviously. And the facilitator looks puzzled. He says, how many legs does a fly have? And they say six. And he says, right. And they're all serrated. Do you think the flies pick up more or less poop than my hair does? And they say more. And then he says, do you ever see flies on your food? And they say yes. And he says, do you throw out the food? And they say no. And he says, well, then what are you eating? And now the tension is unbearable. And this is where things really fly off the handle. The truth is no longer escapable. They've been eating each other's poop for who knows how long. And usually at this point, the discussion gets out of control. People are, are angry. They start challenging each other. We can't continue to do this. This is ridiculous. How can we stop this? And they usually ask the facilitator what, he, what they should do, but he doesn't answer. And he says, you know your village better than I do. You can do anything you want, including continuing to defecate in public. But now the villagers are determined. They, they can't tolerate living with the status quo for another day. And this is an emotionally wrenching process and disgust is the number one trigger. And of course, shame as well. People are saying, what are we doing? Are we even humans eating each other's poop? And thousands of communities worldwide have now been declared open defecation free because of this exact intervention where, uh, where 
we bring in this line of questioning and people end up tripping over the truth. In Bangladesh, where this became a cornerstone of national sanitation work, the rate of open defecation has declined from 34% to 1%. And there's a few reasons why using CLTS to create a moment of insight is so effective. First, the leader knows what the truth he wants to share. And then second, the realization strikes fast. It takes a couple minutes or hours, not weeks or months. People are tripping over the truth quickly. And then lastly, the people in the audience discover the truth for themselves. And in turn, that discovery makes the need for action obvious. And that that three-part recipe for tripping over the truth, one, a clear insight, two, compressed in time, and three, discovered by the audience, provides a blueprint for us for when we want people to confront uncomfortable truths. Whether you're in sales and you're trying to get a customer to see they have a problem and need to make a change to your product, or you're a parent trying to teach your kids a lesson or anything in between, an educator, whatever it may be, this formula, clear insight compressed in time, discovered by the audience, is always an effective way to get them to that moment of insight and tripping over the truth. All right, so that was moments of insight And next, let's look at moments of pride. And for moments of pride, I want to talk a little bit about employee recognition. And in the book, they talk about how employee recognition is this critical piece of retaining employees and growing employees, but we're not nearly as good at at it as we need to be. They cite one study in the book that said more than 80% of supervisors claimed that they frequently express appreciation to their subordinates. Meanwhile, less than 20% of employees report that their supervisors express appreciation more than occasionally. So there's a significant gap between how often we think we're recognizing employees and how often employees actually feel recognized. And we need to fill that gap. And he also says in the book, Dan Heath does, that the proper pace for employee recognition is more like a weekly employee recognition rather than a monthly or yearly recognition. One survey found that the top reason that people leave their jobs is a lack of praise and recognition. And of course, that gap I just mentioned, many of us are aware of that gap, but usually just what we do to fill that is to create more recognition programs like Employee of the Month Awards or annual banquets. But they don't succeed as moments of pride for two reasons. First, the scale is wrong, and secondly, they turn into just these generic awards that end up being forgettable and not making the employee actually feel appreciated. The book tells the story of a manager who used tailored rewards to recognize employees, so rather than this generic Employee of the Month award where you just get your name on a plaque on the wall, uh, what this guy did was gave, uh, basically gave prizes or uh, rewards based on the accomplishment that the person actually made. So for a, a sales rep who came up with a customized solution for an individual client, he gave them a Keurig single serve coffee machine because that lets you tailor each cup of coffee to the specific person drinking it. To uh, some other sales reps that showed 
curiosity about their clients, he gave them North Face gear that had the tagline, never stop exploring. So the importance here is, is the authenticity of that recognition being personal rather than programmatic. And also the frequency, like I mentioned, more, more like weekly recognition rather than yearly recognition. And of course, mo- most important of all is the message of, I saw what you did and I appreciate it. That's how we make these moments of employee recognition turn into moments of pride, which are remembered for years to come. And lastly, let's talk about moments of connection. And moments of connection are all about deepening ties. And deepening ties includes both responsiveness and openness. First, let's look at responsiveness. So responsiveness includes three things. First, understanding. My partner knows how I see myself and what's important to me. Secondly, validation. My partner respects who I am and what I want. And third, caring. My partner actually takes active and supportive steps in helping me meet my needs. Studies have shown that responsive treatment leads infants to feel secure and children to feel supported. It also makes people more satisfied with their friends and it brings couples closer together. But when we really start to quickly develop intimacy is when we pair that responsiveness up with openness or vulnerability. And here's how that happens. One person reveals something and waits to see if the other person will share something back. And if that reciprocity comes, that's a sign that there's understanding happening, validation, and caring. You're saying, I hear you, I understand what you're saying, and I care for you enough to disclose something about myself now. On the other hand, a partner who's unresponsive, like a seatmate on a flight who just throws on their headphones shortly after you say something, they terminate that reciprocity, freezing that relationship. In the book, the Heath brothers talk about a study that was conducted at a bus stop, and a researcher approached strangers with a quote-unquote high intimacy comment, which is really just a, a comment with some vulnerability in it. All this researcher had to say was, I'm really glad this day was over. I've had a really hectic day. How about you? And suddenly that door opened up for deeper conversation. In another study, some college students taking a psychology class volunteered to be paired up with another student in the class who was a stranger to them. Each pair in that class was given 36 numbered questions on pieces of paper in an envelope that they drew out one at a time and answered, each person answered. These questions were divided into three rounds of 15 minutes each. And as they went through this question set, the questions became increasingly more intimate and vulnerable. So as an example, in round one, an example of a question was, given the choice of anyone in the world, who would you want as a dinner guest? That's a super non-threatening question, doesn't reveal a lot about a person. But once they get to round three, question 33 says, if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? Why haven't you told them yet? Now that question has a lot more vulnerability behind it. And what happened once this 
this period was over of going through these 36 questions, the pair was separated and they were asked to complete a short survey that measured their closeness. And the average score of the participants was 3.82 on a scale of 7. And at first glance, that 3.82 out of 7 may not feel like it's that high, but consider the fact that researchers asked another group of students on campus to rate their closest, deepest, most involved, and most intimate relationship. Something like a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a mom or a best friend on that same scale. 30% of those students rated their most intimate relationship at less than a 3.82. So just think about that in perspective for a second. Two strangers sat down and had 45 minutes of conversation, and at the end of it, they felt as close to that stranger as 30% of college students feel to the most intimate relationship in their lives. That's, that's pretty crazy stuff. And that 36-question survey set uh, has become pretty famous. In fact, there's an app you can download if you want to try them out with somebody. I've recently downloaded that app on my phone but have not yet gone through them with my wife but plan to so as you go about your day keep that reality in mind be intentional to go deeper than small talk share just something small that's real and personal maybe like a a struggle you're facing and hopefully the person you're talking to reciprocates and you can take that conversation and thus that relationship to a deeper level. You'd be really surprised what just revealing a little bit more about yourself does to to deepen your ties with people. That was moments of connection and that was the the fourth out of the four kind of components that make up these extraordinary moments in our lives. So we had elevation, insight, pride, and connection. And as I close out here, I'll leave you with, with this this quote directly from the book. Uh, There was a nurse who served patients for the final weeks of their lives, and she wrote an article called The Regrets of the Dying. And she shared the five most common regrets of people she had come to know. The first regret was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Most people had not honored even a half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. Second, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Third, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Many people suppress their feelings in order to keep peace with others. Fourth, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And fifth, I wish that I had let myself be happier. Many did not realize until the end until the end that happiness is a choice and they had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits. It's striking to know how many of the principles we've encountered would serve as antidotes to those five common regrets. One, stretching ourselves to discover our reach. Two, being intentional about creating peaks in our personal lives. Three, practicing courage by speaking honestly and seeking partners who are responsive to us in the first place. Four, the value of connection. And five, 
creating moments of elevation and breaking the script to move beyond old patterns and habits. The most precious moments are often the ones that cost the least. And that's a wrap on Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. And I've gone way more in depth on this episode than I originally intended. Like I said at the beginning, I definitely bit off more than I could chew here. Uh, And still, I've barely scratched the surface on what's in this book. So if you want to check out uh, the book and see what else is in there, uh, I'd encourage you to, to go grab it from Amazon. I think it's like 15 bucks. And there's also used copies on thriftbooks.com for right around $10. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Inside Cover Podcast. <music>